This is Superfood Sundays, a plant-based podcast with Chef Lynette. Yeah, what are you eating? What have you eaten today? So I have been wildly undernourished as of late due to how busy I've been. So <laughs> I, half of my meals today have been Y bars, which are a cool new bar that I just got sent actually a few weeks ago. Here's some free promo for Y bar. <laughs> they're they're cool. They're like chia seed based and they're meant to kind of give you like a three hour holdover uh, mini meal replacement. And so I have been surviving off of those with my very long days as of late. I would say two out of three meals <laughs> lately here in uh, the Stoikovic house but normally i would have liked to have eaten uh, a nice lunch by now okay so what <laughs> so the chia bars are are doing it for you but on a regular basis what is your kind of go-to breakfast or go-to lunch so not a huge breakfast person i have tried over the years to become a breakfast person but it's just not for me i'm a big lunch person i'm a very basic whole foods vegan i would say so tofu and veggies or I eat a lot of chickpea pasta, like a lot, a lot of chickpea pasta. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny you say that because for pre-production, the requisite stalking for all of our guests, I saw a Instagram post of you in Grocery Outlet, which is one of my favorite places in L.A., dude, dude, <laughs> it's my favorite store. <laughs> It really is. It's definitely one of my favorite spots. And you were doing a vegan haul and you literally had a handful of, wow, this is probably going to be a lot of call outs here for this one, but Bonza pasta. Let's hear it. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Bonza is, Bonza is king. All right. Yeah. So I, I'm going to just plug, I do this for anybody who is a new vegan or trying to eat vegan. Yeah. Chickpea pasta is a godsend. It is so amazing because first off, it takes, it's satiating like real pasta, especially bonza pasta. And it's got protein in it because it's chickpea based. So it's like an all-in-one solution. I just toss it up with veggies and I don't need to have that center of plate protein because the bonza is already a protein based pasta. So Huge props to them. They've done an amazing job making a great product. There is another cool one. So this could be a lot of shout outs today because I work with women founders all over the world. Oh, let's do Chickapea? it. Chickapea? All right. <laughs> have, you heard of, have you heard of Chickapea? No, I haven't. We're going to be put on today. What's Chickapea? Okay. Chickapea is this amazing Canadian small brand. Shelby, she's, she's actually from the small town not too far away from where I grew up, up in Canada. So like, just like dot, a tiny dot on the map. And she's been scaling this company. They're now all across Canada and in the U.S., really just like a Canadian version of Bonza, all kinds of really great vegan protein pastas. Very good product. Very, very excited to see it on the shelves here in California a few uh, months ago. So women founder, bootstrapping it, building it out of Canada, which as you all know, building a company out of Canada or somewhere that's not the U.S. and the U.K. is always a challenge. Really cool story there. Absolutely. And a good product. Yeah, yeah. Speaking of Canada and U.K. and the United States, that brings me to your passport collection. <laughs> yeah, little plug. I got a lot of them. Yeah. So my mother's British. That's why I have a British passport. So my mom grew up in London. She's Her father's from India. Her mother's from Holland. They met in London and had the baby and then had a few of them there and decided, wow, London's really expensive and we don't have any money to raise a family here. So they moved to Canada. So I was born in Canada and I spent uh, my first two decades there. 
And then I was working for my professor in college and got sent down to a startup weekend. Do you remember those? Does anyone remember startup weekend? <laughs> That's like a way back playback, like a 2010 type thing. Uh, so they're basically just these kind of cool hackathon type events that the Kaufman Foundation used to put on all around North America to get a bunch of um, young students and kids together to create ideas. And, and really back in the day when we were still really heavy into building apps if you remember that like the post 2008 yeah. tech world yeah. is all about like the next app the next app the next app so yeah. a lot of apps came at a startup weekend so i was covering a startup weekend in uh, tampa florida so my colleagues my other the fellow students the other tas got sent to go to vegas their startup weekend was in vegas and my friend jeff and i got sent to tampa florida and we were so so bummed that we got sent to Tampa, Florida. And because, uh, you know, what do you know about Tampa? Growing up in Canada, I'd only ever heard of, you know, there's Orlando, which yeah, is where Miami. Disney is, in yeah. Miami. Yeah. yeah. You know, welcome to Miami. What on earth is in Tampa? Hulk Hogan, right? So. Oh, I didn't even know that. I, see? Yeah. Yeah. So the Hogans are there. So I was there for two days and attended, I don't know, one hour of the entire weekend and met a guy and flew back a few weekends later. And I love you and ran to a courthouse and it was all kind of tied up within a few months. And then I immigrated to America. Wow. And yeah. It was just kind of like control Z on Canada, finished school online. And we are about to celebrate in a few months time, our 10 year wedding anniversary. Wow. So we okay. showed them. Okay. <laughs> it can happen and it can go long and strong. So he's been super helpful, I can imagine, of just being that supportive partner as you, you know, move through these different spaces with your career. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I'm very fortunate. My husband's actually a refugee from the Yugoslavian War. So he came over as a kid and was really raised in a family of immigrants. So when I immigrated on my, what seems like a it's a silly journey, right? Canada to the U.S. Yeah, you leave everything, but it's still kind of the same culture compared to what he went through leaving Yugoslavia. Kind of like it pales in comparison. So yes, but you're here and you're going and you're doing. Now, is he vegan? He is. It was actually surprise. My husband's idea for us to go vegan. Really, that was my next question. Actually, because you know most folks they get really deep into activism and it's something that maybe started when they were a child. And for others, it was a solution to medical issues. You got the influence from your husband. Yes. We had a personal tragedy that happened in our lives that caused us to question our existence on the planet and, and what we wanted our impact to be and decided to choose compassion. Wow. Okay. Now, with that early influences, were there any curiosities like, oh, well, when I was 15, I did this and, you know, anything along the line that indicated to you that you would end up in this space? I was always an animal lover. Certainly growing up, I always had pets. Well, I thought I was doing my version of loving an animal in the way that you can when you're eating a standard American diet. And you know what it's like. My dad grew up on like a dairy farm. He used to tell me stories of being a dairy hand when he was 15. And, you know, he still to this day, it took me many years to even convince him like, dad, I know that was a really kind experience. That's not how we do it anymore. And it hasn't been for a while, but I grew up rural. So I was in a very small town, as I mentioned in Canada. So we were surrounded by animals and I was always very curious about them. My uncle actually, who passed away quite a long time ago, but before he passed away, was an investigator for the Humane Society. So I remember we used to rescue animals. Okay. So all these hoarding and strange situations that these inspectors and 
investigators get sent into, you got to figure out where to rehouse a lot of those animals. And so we ended up with some turtles one time. We also collected some cats and dogs over the years. We had a three-legged cat at some point. And I think like that early influence also made me acutely aware of how we treat animals. So anything that was considered to be a pet, I always made sure to treat it very well. And even when I was in farm life, I always made sure to treat those animals well. I just didn't really connect what happened to them afterwards. Mm, interesting. So when along in this 10-year marriage did you guys become vegan? Seven years ago. We just had our seven-year vegan anniversary. So you guys have literally been on this journey together. With that being said, are there any pieces of advice that you can give to couples that are starting this together? Yeah, absolutely. So I realize I'm very fortunate to have been going through this journey as a couple and a lot of people are on a solo journey. So kudos to all of you that are holding it up for your side of the the relationship or the marriage. I think first and foremost, you have to learn to cook new foods. That was a big piece of it for Mm. me. I was a Like meat and potatoes, chicken nuggets, girl. Like that was everything that I ate before going vegan. And so I had to completely learn how to cook all kinds of things. And so we really just decided to make that an active hobby and an activity together where we would learn recipes. We would go to the store. We would try the tofu 50 different ways until it looked appetizing. So we really made it that an experience together. And I think that made a big difference. And also... My husband, he's Serbian. And so those, that, that part of the world is not vegan friendly. You know, we've been uh, back to, to Serbia and there is like almost no vegan food at all. So no, it's like Chavapchi. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Chavapi and Gibanica. And, uh-huh. you know, he was eating piglet brains when he was a kid. Like that's just traditional over in those parts of the world. I actually spent a lot of time learning how to veganize traditional uh, recipes from his culture and the foods that he grew up eating. And to this day, my father-in-law swears that my gibanica, which is like the unofficial food of Serbia, it's mm-hmm. like a phyllo cheese pie, is better than a real one uh, made with dairy cheese. We call it in the family veganica. I, I actually, <laughs> I've been working at, on the last couple visits I've had with my mother-in-law, just kind of incepting into her the idea of how we should do a Baltic like Slavic cookbook because nobody's someone in the plant-based space. And she has spent over the years, all of this time veganizing all these recipes so that we would eat at family dinners. And I don't think anybody else has really covered this culture. And yeah, that's my plug. If anyone thinks that that is a good idea for a cookbook, please let me know so that I can reach out to her because I think it would be a hit. Yeah, definitely. I mean, at this point, luckily for everyone, this is just becoming so much more mainstream. Now it's time to get a little bit more granular with just the different groups across the world and how to really veganize those things. We've yeah. definitely, definitely got this. All right. Absolutely. Yeah. So if you were vegan for seven years, that means you haven't been vegan for obviously all of your life. And so with Vegan Women's Summit, is this your first foray into turning this passion into a profession it is yes okay all right so before that I read that you were really deep into the tech space and that basically you were looking to find that connection between the future obviously of technology but then the future of food so how did all that kind of come about 
So I built my career in Silicon Valley in the tech industry, and I've been very fortunate to work with pretty much if they're an app on your phone, they're probably folks I've worked with everyone from Google and Facebook and Airbnb to gig economy, all kinds of really exciting, fun, interesting future of technology companies. And so as I was doing that in my professional life, I, of course, as I shared personally, you know, cared about veganism and, and did a lot of charitable work. And I discovered back in like 2018 or so that the future of food was starting to get more mainstream attention. And you got to think this is before the beyond IPO, right? Yeah. That was kind of like the watershed moment for the industry. But Absolutely. I started to see more and more interest being paid to the space. And it was something I cared about and I knew was the next big thing. But then I was excited to see, oh, wow, everybody else does too. And so I started doing some programming in the future of food and working with some really cool um, tech CEOs and founders and folks to bring them together with food tech CEOs like Uma Valetti from Upside Foods. It was then Memphis Meats and Josh Tedrick from Just and a whole bunch of those folks. And it was a great experience. And I, I was able to amass like a, a very strong and powerful group of people together. But I discovered pretty quickly that there was something in common with everyone. And that is, it was a very male dominated space. And to me at, at the time, and, and still to this day, it didn't really make sense because my connotation of, of plant-based eating and conscious eating and sustainability and all of that was women usually are leading it. So why are these all male CEOs? And that's where I started to kind of peel back the layers and discover that there really is a lack of representation in the future of food for women. So I started working with folks like Miyoko Shinner, of Miyoko's mm -hmm. and, and a few other very close friends of mine to come up with the concept of VWS. And we started with the Vegan Women's Summit in-person conference. That was our very first outing. We had 250 women in a room in San Francisco. And we went from 250 women in a room to over 40,000 women professionals across six continents in less than two years. You were able to round everyone up for sure. It's interesting because I always think about how when you think of the traditional domestic partnerships and how the woman is in the kitchen. But then when it's time to make money off of the kitchen, then the executive chefs and the CEOs are all met. So I think it's, it's really great what you're doing and it's time. What were some of the things starting off that were more hurdles like so far that you've had to kind of deal with, even though this is a great thing and it's something so necessary? Well, the, the first hurdle was certainly the pandemic, and I'm sure that's the first thing that most folks are saying when they have this conversation with you lately. You know, we started in person as one single conference before becoming a global media platform. We were just one conference. And so our entire concept was based around in-person meeting. So, of course, when the pandemic hit, we had this this challenge where it was, okay, do we put this entire thing on pause? And you know, go back to the drawing board, focus on other projects, or do we try to pivot this to a virtual community and see where we can go from there? So we decided obviously on the latter of the two and uh, it was an interesting endeavor, but a very exciting one. We've, you know, hosted probably close to 20,000 people at this point virtually. And uh, we've done a ton of virtual programs, everything from job networking events to bringing celebrities on for interviews to pitch competitions yeah. women founder summits we have tried all of it to see where can we really find the sweet spot where can we really serve the community best where are the biggest needs and those needs have changed too right Lynette? Yeah. like so you know two years ago what people were craving was connection so two years ago i was putting on content where 
I call up Tab, you know, Tabitha, and I'm like, hey, Tabitha, like, let's do a talk on how we can stick together during the pandemic. So we do a talk on that. And that's something that we've done from the beginning, but a whole bunch of these other companies had not. And we had really honest, meaningful conversations where some of the creators we spoke to said, yeah, I've been reaching out to these brands for years. And now suddenly in the last month, they want to work with me. You know, Mm. like, what is that? What does that say about the industry? So as things have changed in society, we've really pivoted our content around it. And then the big one in this last year has been the talent war. It is just a bloodbath out there looking for talent. And so we pivoted into getting into the job networking space and helping to fulfill that talent pipeline for companies because we realized that it's one thing to make sure that women founders are getting supported. And obviously we do a lot of work on that, but that's only one role at the company. Like to be in leadership, there is a whole slew of recs at a company where we need to make sure that they are getting plugged into women professionals. Our community is 60% women of color, like making sure that we're getting that representation at junior level, senior level, management, executive level, investor level, board member level. There's so many places where women are underrepresented. So we're really kind of lasered in on that as well right now. Wow, that's interesting. So I didn't even really think about that as far as just the talent pool, because you're absolutely right. I mean, it can only be, you know, one founder, and that's a good space to be able to to plug people into that. Wow. When you were continuing to work in the tech space, how was the reception for you regarding anything vegan related with what you already had existing with your career? That's an interesting one. So certainly with my career in tech, vegan and tech didn't really mesh together. So it wasn't really part of my identity. But what was interesting when I really started to bring the two identities together was when WeWork did their meat ban. And so I'll give like a plug to WeWork here. I know very tumultuous company, lots of drama, but they really, really stood up for me and showed up for me when I reached out to them and said, yo, you guys are banning meat. Nobody's ever done this before. What do you think? Like, what can we do about it? And so we launched a big giant event series. We flew their founder in. Like it was, they really, really owned that, that narrative. And they actually were our very first venue host for the first Vegan Women's Summit. We hosted it with WeWork Food Labs as one of our, our co-hosts. And so they really did show up for us. So That was an interesting example of a mainstream tech company that really leaned into this space. So there have been little instances of that here and there, but generally the two kind of don't mesh. Yeah, WeWork is great. Superfood School has done some activations with them. Super supportive. I think that it was at the time they were one of the first. And this was, you know, this is before the Met Gala goes vegan and the Oscars go vegan, right? That's all been in the last year. We have to really think about even two or three years ago, where we were at when it comes to acknowledging the impact that our plate has on the climate crisis, it it was in a very different place even last year. Yeah, absolutely. I saw one of your posts calling that out as far as just the Oscars and the Met going vegan. I think you were mentioning. The major political events that they continue to hold that are supposed to be at global climate change summits, they still have not gone vegan. They focus on local food and put like the footprint of how far your mutton traveled this past year just really missed it i'll tell you a funny story about that actually so the global climate action summit if you remember when trump first went into office and he cut us out of the paris climate accord do you remember when the governor of california is like 
we're going to do a summit anyway. And there was this massive global climate action summit where the entire world came just to California, to, to San Francisco instead. And that was where they did all the Paris Climate Accord kind of conversations. And it was so interesting. So I actually spent some time with Vice President Al Gore at mm-hmm. that event. And I have a picture of them. We're smiling and we're both chatting to each other about how there was nothing to eat at the event because there was <laughs> nothing vegan at the at the Global Climate Action Summit with one of the most powerful politicians and nobody had any food they could give us. Go figure. Yeah. You think that you have it all covered, but then the biggest thing is really actually putting your money where your mouth is, so to speak. When it comes to working with women and getting businesses off the ground, you mentioned bootstrapping earlier, but I want to talk about investing and just really navigating that as not only a woman founder, but perhaps a woman founder, a woman founder of color, or just a woman founder in the plant-based space. So those are two underdogs, so to speak. And I'd like to know what are some of the things that you've been able to help other women founders with? So this is a conversation in itself that could go for hours. You know, this is <laughs> this is really the bread and butter of uh, VWS Pathfinder. That's our global pitch competition and Women Founder Summit. We've yeah. done it for two years in a row now. We've had over a thousand women apply from 31 countries. So first and foremost, when they say there aren't enough women founders, I don't, can, I, can I say bullshit? I already said it. Go well, on. that's bullshit. bullshit. <laughs> it's just, it's bullshit. It's not true. They are out there in droves. And I can tell you because they reach out to me. But the problem, of course, is that you're not going to find them in traditional places. If you're looking for non-traditional founders, they're going to probably be in non-traditional places because the fact of the matter is the majority of VCs until recent years, obviously, maybe even in the last like 12 months or so, folks are really starting to to look for how they can actually activate underrepresented founders. But before that, it was the old boys club, you know, or the tech bros club or whatever name you want to call it. That's kind of how a lot of deals were made. That's how a lot of money was split between folks. And the majority of VCs, there's more VCs that went to two universities in this country than there are women and VCs of color altogether combined, right? Like that's how profound the networking gap is. And also how profound these alumni networks are, right? If you went to Stanford, then you're going to get funded. And if you're not from a few miles away from Palo Alto, good luck. So we decided that our pitch competition would focus specifically on creating that access, right? We wanted to create that through line so that women knew there was a place they could come to get connected with investors. And so we did a lot of non-traditional recruiting. One of the you know most successful recruiting efforts that we did was we partnered with Postmates and put out the call to all of their couriers. And it makes complete sense because these are, they're gig workers already. So they're entrepreneurial mindset and they've got experience with food. Turns out a ton of them were trying to hatch up food product ideas. If you think about the arenas in which we operate and where these people are, we look at gig economy employees, which are going to be much more likely to be uh, like a lot of the times communities of color and and doing this kind of gig work. They also are hustlers that can start a company really quickly because they essentially are their own business already. And so exactly. that there's one great like talent pool that nobody was looking at. Another thing being 
there is a significant lack of black professionals on LinkedIn. It is a known thing. LinkedIn has always really been seen as like more of like a white community of professionals. And I know LinkedIn is working really hard to change that now with a lot of their DEI efforts. But up until recently, that's just kind of was the case. And so we recruited tons of founders off of Instagram. I can't tell you how many amazing companies we met through Instagram, right? That's a very Mm. non-traditional place to meet companies. And that's another place where we were able to access a lot of founders. And so the networking gap is important for us to realize just what that can do to a woman founder, particularly if she's a woman founder of color, particularly if she's a woman founder of color who's a mom. Oh, wow. Okay, that layer. You add the layer of being a mother. And you add all the time commitments and take away all the free time to to even go to the mixers and the meetups and to network with people, right? So that that widens it even more. We do the only women founder survey in the future of food every year. So we just released our results a month and a half ago for 2021. Yeah, tell and, us more about that. I saw that. I'm, I'm excited. Oh, I got, <laughs> I got stats for days, girl. So it's the only survey of its kind that's focused in this arena. And unfortunately, reports of bias from investors increased this past year instead of decreased, which was very unfortunate to see. Yeah, women founders of color were one and a half times more likely to report bias from investors than white founders as well, which was also very concerning. Of the women founders, it was almost half of women founders reported experiencing bias from investors. And of those that reported bias, more than 80% were gender bias, like just staggeringly high. Gender bias remains like by far and large the biggest hurdle that women feel they have to overcome. But obviously racial bias is second, of course, that's a huge one. Ageism, ageism is an interesting one because we see it on both ends. So to give you like an example of a story, Miyoko, when she first was starting Miyoko's at the age of 57, so there's a fun fact, Miyoko's had five or six companies before starting the Miyoko's you know today. So, you know, it's never too late to become a founder. You can start a company at 57, no friggin' problem. And she was told by one of the investors she pitched, I think to, to quote it correctly, if I was your husband, I would tell you to stay in the kitchen or something to that, to that degree. (laughs) And then at the same time though, we've got founders like Julianne Panan of Creative Nature over in London where she's a millennial, she's 30, a little bit, I think, petite. And so they said to her, based on her appearance, like, you'll never get something on grocery store shelves, little girl. Wow. It's just like Goldilocks, right? You know, Miyoko's too old, Julian's too young. Like, we get the ageism conversation and how that manifests is really, really unfortunate. Even, what was it, a month and a half ago, I was in, De- in December, Miyoko and I did a talk and she told me about how she was facing ageism and bias from like consultants even a few weeks before that, after she's raised like multiple rounds. Like the fact that the discrimination and and the way that you're treated as a woman doesn't necessarily improve. And also when it comes to racial bias, it's really interesting too, because the racial bias that women face, depending on what your background is, is different, right? So if you're a black woman, then you're expected to be abrasive and you have that like angry black woman stereotype. If you're if you're Asian, they expect you to be very demure and submissive. And if you're yeah. not that, then you get pushed back. Like there's all of this baggage that just gets layered onto women. And they walk into the room with these VCs. And unless these are VCs that came from their communities or understand their lived experience, which is now improving, obviously, with more getting more women into VC, it's still only 5%, then these 
usually white males, they don't understand where you're coming from in terms of of the product market fit. A lot of times they're not going to understand the market in general if this is a market that they're not a part of. And this is like the big compelling reason for why you need diverse teams, because it brings more people's perspective towards the actual problems in the market. I wanted to circle back to the survey and I want to know about two things. And you might have answered this question just a second ago, but what was the most shocking stat that came across your findings this year? And then what is the most non-shocking? So certainly in terms of the women founders, I would say that the biggest shock was when bias reporting increased. That was something I was not expecting. I was actually expecting for there to be a massive change for certainly women founders of color. So that was surprising. But the amount of women that reported going to really consciously, thoughtfully choose their investors, huge difference, right? So so this is really fascinating stuff. So the amount of money that was free flowing in this past 18 months during the pandemic, it was insane because more than 90% of the currency in circulation in America, U.S. dollars literally in circulation, were printed within the last few years. There was just a massive, massive amount of, we could get into a whole crypto thing as a a side note here, but there was just like a massive amount of inflation we're now facing. The printers were on and they were spitting money out and people had to figure out where to put money. And so that's why you were seeing these insane rounds. Like you've got this like series A company, like hundreds of millions. And that's because there's so much money that the tap was a flowing. The tap was not a flowing as of today. At the end of last year, it was still flowing. And so we had this really interesting phenomenon where our founders had the ability to pick and choose their cap table in a way that had never happened before. So as I've shared that, obviously there's a lack of women getting funding for the many women that did get funding they got to be picky. And I had a lot of interesting conversations from a data perspective, as well as anecdotally with some of the CEOs that that we work with, where they interviewed their investors. They pitched, they said, here's this amazing product. The investors are like, I'm in. They're like, I'm actually oversubscribed. So tell me what you actually bring to the table. That's something to think about because money is money. But then, hey, maybe this person has a connection to a wholesale quinoa producer. Mm -hmm. That's great to take the money. But then you need the advice, you need the Rolodex to be able to really execute on those dollars. So that's really great to hear. For that to have been able to happen, that means it can happen again. And and I think this is a trend you'll continue to see is really how we can become a little bit more scrupulous with the way that we accept money, who we accept money from. and, And it's the kind of thing that We're going to continue to see it as a trend. It won't be to the same degree where you can say no to so many people as we hit this market downturn in the next however long this is going to be. Mm -hmm. But it is a principle that you're seeing more and more founders carry with them is it's not just about the check. It's about the strategic investor piece of it. And to your point of the quinoa producer of just who's going to like actually stump for you? Who's going to be there for you? As an investor, who's going to just set it and forget it? Who's going to hold your hand? Who's going to bridge you around for you while you're having your baby? Because we've had stories of that too. That yeah. is, that's the difference that it can make with who you accept money from and what comes with that money. And that's, that's a big piece of the education of also 
how much your company you're giving up, right? Do you actually have to raise money? That's an entire conversation in itself. You can bootstrap, you can debt finance, you can crowdfund. Crowdfunding is getting hugely popular. You know, Courtney Boyd Myers from Akua put her round onto Republic and successfully closed it. Then you've got Deborah Torres over with Atlas Monroe in San Diego. They've got the largest vegan chicken facility in all of the United States. She's never taken an outside dime of of VC money. It's all just been bootstrapping and, and financing the thing herself. Yeah. And that, that brings me to my next question for those listening that are either interested in starting a vegan food company as a woman, what are some of the first things that they need to look out for as far as raising money? Because sometimes people literally have nothing, like as far as like collateral or maybe their credit is messed up and how do people get started in some of the most inhospitable conditions? So first and foremost, don't raise money unless you have to. And don't don't believe that it's the only way to build a company. It's the it's very in vogue right now to announce crazy rounds with big numbers in the headlines. And I've got two companies I work with where one of them is telling me we're about to announce the biggest raise ever for our series and they were all excited. <laughs> the other company I worked with announced a week earlier and they taught them and they took away their headline and they were banking on that headline. That's a fad and that's not necessarily indicative of what you need for your business's health. So I think that get your finances in order from the very beginning. Have clean books from the very beginning. This is a tip that I learned from Pinky Cole. She's like, it doesn't matter how good your brand is. If it looks like garbage inside, you're screwed. That was one of the earliest lessons that she learned for Slutty Vegan. That means like proper bookkeeping from the beginning. Get your balance sheets, your P&L, all that. Do that from the beginning as much as that sucks. Please prioritize doing that. Make sure that you have good relationships with lawyers. Make sure you've got somebody else that looks over things before you sign it. Like these are the basics, but... There's a lot of founders and not just women, but founders in general that seem to miss some of these steps. And so as rudimentary as they sound, I make sure to to say them to everyone. So make sure you got somebody keeping your books and make sure that you've got a proper lawyer, even if it's a lawyer that you call on for 15 minutes to review something and just give a once over on a document. It can be the difference between whether you end up owning your company or not. Right. One word. One word. <laughs> Can change something in a document. Absolutely. Now, what about the other types of assets that can be brought to the table, which are partners, co-founders, different things like that? What are your thoughts on that? Because not everyone is really good at the bookkeeping and all of these different aspects. So I think there's definitely a lot of things that you can have a third party outsource to, like simple things like books, legal. That doesn't need to be someone you bring on right away. But I'll be honest, I do not see a lot of solo founders these days. I see very, very often 90% of teams are co-founding team these days. And and that's that's out of both necessity and out of strategy. Unfortunately, there are still every year a myriad of women that say that they, A, have a different experience altogether in the business. They're thought of as the secretary, the assistant, whatever it might be. And B, they specifically brought a male in to do the pitches because they knew that they would raise money easier if they did that. And how do you feel about this? As a vegan women's summit is like, oh, is this a cheat code? So here's the thing. We have 10 years to get this right in terms of the climate crisis. So Mm -hmm. we need all hands on deck, Mm -hmm. all solutions. We need to have a mass proliferation 
of animal alternatives hit the market yesterday. So as long as things are done ethically and people are consenting folks, do what it takes to get these products out there because they are the ethical imperative. And that's my potentially a controversial answer, but that's how I feel. Oh, I get it. So when it comes to the future of food and, and thinking about women who are interested in starting a business in this industry, but what is the future of vegan food? Where do we need the most help at? Because you can obviously talk about a vegan butter or vegan ice cream, but what sectors are you seeing that really need the most attention or where it maybe it's too much attention and people should focus on other things. What's that look like in the future? What, what's in your crystal ball? <laughs> it's the question of the day, right? So <laughs> eggs, eggs, eggs. I there's know, right? Of, so crazy. Are, it's okay. There's a ton, <laughs> a ton of companies in the last 18 months that have popped up that you haven't tried yet because they're not on your grocery store shelves, but there's some magnificent stuff out there. So eggs are a big big category for growth like huge yes. vegan cheese still vegan cheese has like one percent market penetration 40 percent of the households in america have a milk alternative but one percent have a cheese alternative huge white space there still despite how you know amazing miyoko is and everything we've said about her company she only focuses on a few types of cheeses there's still so many different cheese products that are yet to kind of hit the market wow like looking outside of food specifically there is the leathers, the sustainable alternatives, a lot of that stuff is going to be affected as you have to think about the interconnection and the upstream and downstream effects when you remove one of the products and you veganize one of the products, but not all the products that come from it, right? So there's hundreds mm. and hundreds of products that come out of one cow's slaughter. Mm -hmm. So who is like focusing on the gelatin? Like who's got the cell-based gelatin? Who's got the cell-based leather? Who's got the meat? Who's got the fat, the muscle? So so many products that we use animals for now and we've really thrown a lot of money into burgers and cool like we congratulations like you can pretty much get a burger that tastes like a burger now that wasn't made with an animal <laughs> but if you look at the percentage of meat that's consumed in this country it's chickens like we kill so many more chickens than we do cows and i find disappointing has been how many people have decided to take the flexitarian route as I don't eat red meat anymore. And that was how I did it, ironically. Mm -hmm. But in terms of the environmental impact, like chicken waste and what we're doing to fish, there is massive implications for that. So where are all those chicken alternatives? Where are all those fish alternatives? That's a hot, hot new space. Plant-based chicken you see like with Daring, you know, Drake's investment and Tyndall and there's a lot of really, really good chicken dupes coming out this year. And so I think you'll see a lot more there. And then seafood is a big one. Two-thirds yeah. of the protein consumed in Asia is seafood. So you're seeing a lot more of the innovation happening over in places like Singapore and Hong Kong and whatnot. But that's going to be a big uh, opportunity as well here in, in the U.S. and the EU and, and other markets. I know with the eggs. Please, someone get on a Just Egg alternative because every time I go to Whole Foods, I'll see it, a bunch of it one day, and then I won't see any at all. Like, it's literally <laughs> fun. <laughs> Zero egg. Zero eggs coming to a store near you soon. Okay. Uh, she's uh, Liran Nimrati. She's a friend of mine. She's an Israeli-based CEO. Actually, I have a really, really good chapter on her in my book that's coming out. She is a former base commander in the military turned CEO in the plant-based space. Speaking of coming out, there's a lot of different things on your schedule. That's why I really wanted to 
get a chat in with you to just help spread the word about obviously the Vegan Women's Summit and then a couple other projects that are literally coming up in a matter of days. But please tell us about obviously what you can divulge, <laughs> which is the Vegan Women's Summit, uh, which is going to be here in L.A. But not only what's happening now, but perhaps a few things in the future. And then for those listening, some ways that they can get involved moving forward. So the Vegan Women's Summit is going to be taking place live here in Los Angeles on Friday, April 8th. And it is the only global summit in the entire world focused on the future of food, fashion, beauty, biotechnology. We are all things animal-free innovation from the lens of women's leadership. So it is the only conference focused on women's empowerment and how we can tackle some of the issues that we talked about in today's podcast of filling that talent pipeline, empowering women, how women can start businesses. Also as simple as learning from doctors and asking nutritionists about how to go on your own vegan journey. You name it, we're going to have it there. CEOs, investors, athletes, celebrities, Alicia Silverstone's going to be headlining. So it's the who's who of, of the vegan space. And we're really excited to be hosting it at City Market Social House. We have over 20,000 square feet where you can come and shop and taste vegan food till your heart is full and you are ready to explode. We have over 30 uh, future of food, fashion, and beauty vendors. We've got brands coming from Spain that have never even debuted in North America, from Singapore. I was just talking to a brand from Mexico. It's going to be such an exciting space and it's all focused on how we can empower women to build a kinder, more sustainable world. My goal is that if we can get all nearly 4 billion women on this planet to work to make the world a little bit more compassionate place, then then we can really just move mountains. So that's the summit. It's going to be available both in person. We're about 80% sold out at the time that we are recording this. So if you are interested, please hop on veganwomensummit.com like ASAP before we sell out of tickets. Our VIP sold out months ago. And then we will be announcing a virtual ticket in two weeks' time. Okay. All right. You heard it, 80%. As we wind down the convo, we're going to shift from business to just, I don't know, fun. So I got a wild card question for you. And I say this wild card question as I look at your bio on Vegan Women's Summit and your incredible arms. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) (laughs) And the word athlete in your bio. And just the PADI training, I want to hear a little bit about that because I think it's really phenomenal that you go underwater and do those things. I've never done that before. So I found an interest in scuba diving five years ago. Yeah, I've been diving for five years. So it was literally as simple as we were actually snorkeling in a sinkhole and we saw some folks diving nearby and we walked over to ask the instructor oh, like, what's it take to become a diver? It's, you know, we're both really big swimmers. We love the ocean. We were in Florida at the time. And and the guy goes, well, 70% of the world's underwater. So if you say you like traveling, you got to become a diver. And that permanently changed my view Whoa. of the world. Oh, <laughs> it's per- like, right? Yeah, that <laughs> literally that single line forever changed my view of the world and traveling. I'm a big traveler. I've been to 41 countries. I used to want to go to all seven continents because I've been to six, but now I want to dive all seven. I have actually dove 
six continents. So I got kind of into it. And so last year, my husband and I moved to Mexico and decided to dedicate ourselves to getting really good at it. And so we became rescue divers. So if folks are struggling at the bottom of the ocean, hopefully I can hop in and help save you. I cross my fingers. That never does have to happen. Although we have had a couple of emergencies. Go figure since we did have the training. So. Wow, that that's phenomenal. I was just teaching my niece how to swim. She's literally like four feet tall, but then my pool is three feet and six inches. And she's just trying to learn the depth perception. Mm -hmm. And I'm thinking like, girl, you don't know what it is to be in a pool where it's like three to five feet and all of a sudden it drops off and it's eight eight feet. Your whole body mm -hmm. feels different and like your heart starts to kind of beat more. Even if you can swim, it's just a feeling. But I'm trying to kind of like empathize with her and think like, okay, these four inches. It's a really big deal. <laughs> so yeah, last but not least, this is a little segment we like to call, what's your woo-woo? That could be anything, Kung Fu, meditation, running, but to not like go crazy, what are those things that you do on a regular basis that has nothing to do with the business or the P&L or the bottom line, but what's that woo-woo for you, Jenny? What is it? <laughs> <laughs> I do like exercising. I, I typically exercise every day. It's been very busy lately, so I have not been able to keep up that routine, but that's definitely important to me. I am really big on alcohol-free life, so I don't drink at all. I don't drink, I don't smoke pot, any of that. Okay. And yeah, yeah, both my husband and I don't, and we haven't for a few years now. So eating that like that sober plant-based life, of course, psychedelics don't count. You got to have some woo-woo there. And that's the woo-woo right there. Yeah, that's, I mean, maybe that's everyone I know is doing them here in, in uh, California, but maybe that's depending on where you're listening from a little bit of an interesting one, but, you know, certainly keeping yourself and your brain aligned and leveled on this planet is super, super important. So I'm really big on the way I like to describe my habits and activities are I like things that amplify the world around me, not dull them. Learn more at superfoodschool.org. <laughs>